Hey, folks. Okay. You wanted it? You got it. You got it. You got what you wanted. Everyone won. Everyone wins. I don't even know how to talk. It's fine. You all know that I've loved Seiko. I love Seiko. I mean, from the beginning, I've just always been a fan of Seiko and obviously Grand Seiko. I've loved the brand so much, I became a Seiko boy. But today, I become a Seiko man. <laughs> I don't, that's not true. None of the, No, it's not true at all. By the way, the term Seiko boy means nothing. So if you, if you ask me about it, if you DM me about these things, I made up the term because saying that I'm a Seiko fan sounded stupid. So Seiko boy, it's gender inclusive. We all love it. It means everything. We're good. You, everyone can be a Seiko boy. So, all right, we good with that? Next step. Okay, I've wanted to do this podcast for a really, really, really long time. Um, cause this episode, we, I mean, we, we did it this episode. We get very inside baseball, but there's a big, butt right here, we break it all down. So after you listen to this, you can go flex on your friends with your newfound watch knowledge and opinion. Oh man. Just wait till you hear us talk about courts. So buckle up folks, because we are pleased to present an incredibly special roundtable episode discussing Grand Seiko timepieces. That's right. I said timepieces because I'm trying to sound a little fancy. You could say Grand Seiko watches, but it's their timepieces. So our guests featuring Grand Seiko brand curator, Joe Kirk and Rob Kaplan of Topper Jewelers. You all know Rob. We all love Topper. But we just, I was so glad because they just, I could just, we could just talk. We, you know, and we, we did it. We debate speaking in reference numbers, flexing on folks with Zeratsu polishing, where to start with Grand Seiko, why Quartz is actually dope. Yes, listen to it. Debate me later. The new Tentagraph and what on earth a spring drive actually does. And yes, we do a wrist check. All right, here we go. Let's do it. Joe, what, what is your correct title? I want to make sure I get this right here. Uh, it's uh, Brand Curator. Brand Ooh. Curator. That's, yeah, it's very fancy. Has no real uh, value in terms of, uh, you know, meaning anything. But <laughs> <laughs> that I think sounds it's just like a- the title of someone who's actually running Black Ops on the side. Yeah. I think Brand it's Curator actually sounds like a, that's, that's a nice flex. Is that on the business card? It is. Yeah. Oh, my business man. card gets longer and longer. And my goal is to hopefully have it really really short one day but it's like you know it's taking up the entire card now oh man obviously it doesn't just say brand curator we don't need to go into the deep dark depths of what else is there on there. no but you we were talking about breakfast when we started recording yes. and uh you, you're eating what sounds like the like a, a japanese meal so when did when did the uh the dietary way make its way from the wrist to the to the head here. You you actually, if I listed off some of the things that I ate for breakfast, it would probably sound a lot more Japanese. <laughs> I I had natto today. Like most people don't even like that, uh, but you know, there's a bunch of great Japanese grocery stores around here, and it was actually it all stems from my first time going to Japan. Like, okay, so you you, know, you got in, and because how long have you been with Grand Seiko? Uh, I joined in 2016, but okay. I had a lot of uh, experience behind the counter before that. So right, uh, he was. I, a, I, got, I got a lot of background. He was a okay. well-known uh, forum expert, one of the top few um, on the sales side. When the, when there were just a handful of dealers in the U.S., he was known on the forums as one of the foremost Grand Seiko experts in the country in the early 2000s. You know, Robin Ross definitely beat on that, but oh please, <laughs> oh man! But you okay. were earlier, maybe later, maybe like 2013, 14. But like 2011, 2012, it was there were really two names: um, you and Dan at Timeless Luxury were like the two known people that like a total forum enthusiast could go. Do you have an SBGE 073? And then he'd be like, Oh, you mean the blah blah blah? I mean, that, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Joe was there. <laughs> It's funny, like I, I get uh, referred to as the encyclopedia. I have reference numbers that, uh, you know, I go way back with and uh, I yeah. just don't know how I remember them all. And, you know, it's, I, a, it's like a Rolodex of, of Grand Seiko reference numbers up there. I, I have the same how it, I have the same thing. And can I tell you what my biggest fear is? Um, I have it with Omega too from like the early 2000s when it was eight digit number. And then they switched to a 15 digit <laughs> number in 2007 and I lost my superpower. So... 
Fortunately, since your numbers are alphanumeric, I think we can go with your current number of digits for a long period of time. But if you if you ever switch to fifteen digits, our powers are over, and then we'll oh, be yeah. look you know, we'll be looking them up like everyone else. <laughs> I will. It's funny because I I talked to a friend of mine because I'm I'm you know to establish ourselves here. You know, Rob is the watch dealer, the authorized dealer from Topper Jewelers. We all know Rob Kaplan. Joe is the GS curator of Grand Seiko. And I'm just the clown that likes watches and knows enough to be dangerous. So like, it's funny because I would always mess with some of my friends who would talk to me about watches just in reference numbers. And I was like, man, I was like, I don't get it. I was like, can we live in a world where there's like better names or, you know, I don't want to be in the Rolex world of nicknames like Kermit and Hulk and like, you know, like we live in a Marvel comic verse, which goes to show you how nerdy some of the watch industry is, is that like the only names we could think of were related to comics and, you know, the Marvel universe. But he was like, okay, look, he's like, if we did it the way you want, he's like, you would literally just have like iPhone naming one, two, three, four. He's like, we did that. We just existed way longer than iPhones. So to start us off here, demystify some of the fact of how people communicate about watches versus reference numbers versus nicknames. Like, where, where do you sit on this camp, especially as an enthusiast and representative? Well, for me, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, most people can really just, you know, at surface level, remember things like White Birth or Snowflake or you know, these, these nicknames that, yeah. that are, you know, strong and, and simple. And I mean, for, for our brand, it's a little bit more difficult because we have, uh, you know, we have some very difficult to pronounce names for, for Americans, let's say, right. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of, you know, Shunbun is something that is, is not terrible, but, uh, That's what I have right now. Oh, yeah. There we go. My eye. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of like Omiwatari has got to be difficult for people, you know, right off the bat. So reference numbers, I think are good though, because if, if anything, they remember the last three digits and mm-hmm. that gets you where you need to go. You know, it's, right. uh, the three digits, you know, for us, it's, it's, uh, you know, sequential, everything, you know, comes out kind of in order. And so, you know, I think for the most part, it's pretty easy to, to, decipher once you figure out once you crack the code you know it's right. pretty simple from there but um you know the first four digits are your uh, essentially identifying the movement that's inside and then the next are in series you know when it came out basically like what what number it was. so it's it, you know it makes sense wait but, hold on that that actually makes way more sense now <laughs> well, yeah because i mean I, so as a collector of vintage seikos I had no idea until way later. I mean, I literally have over a dozen in my desk right now that you could date them by the serial number in the sense, because, you know, like people will be like, oh, you know, and I'm just picking on Rolex for a sec because that's just kind of the de facto for some folks to where it's like, oh, I need to look up this chart to figure this out where, say, with even just vintage Seiko, you can date it by just the, you know, the serial is what, like five digits. And so you can kind of get the year within there and stuff. I mean, it's, 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 it's much more transparent than what I think people look at. And I think that's the point of this entire podcast is to really demystify, um, you know, how do, how do we go from enthusiast or person that's aware to collector? Because for me, and I'm just saying this, no one's told me to say this, like, I think Grand Seiko is the most, you know, I don't want to say underrated because that implies like value, like not appreciated. I think it's just one of the most incredible brands, like period, not just watch brands, but just how you all have operated from a cultural uh, commitment of what it means to reflect the craftsmanship of the culture of Japan, but also how you know, how fun it is to get into this stuff when you really truly understand the level of craftsmanship and more importantly, handwork. Because when people talk about watches, I don't think many people realize as as a a lot of these watch companies have grown, there's a lot that's just robotic machine made and it it loses some of the, for, for, for something that's so incredible with the mechanical side, I'm air quoting that word, we forget how involved hands are in making it. And those hands are you know, Grand Seiko and the, the, the employees of, of Seiko Epson, you know, as a, as a whole. And I just, I mean, I just feel like it, it's just not understood. Um, yeah, no, I think that you're right. It's, uh, you know, it, that's what I think one of the things that draws a lot of people to the brand is the handmade craftsmanship and the the many years of honing on their skills and and really trying to, to be the best at what they do, no matter what they do. Right. You know, tempering the second hand. Every single second hand is individually heated up until it goes from silver to, to blue. And the person who's doing that is, you know, our bluing specialist who has been mastering <laughs> this craft for you know the last 20 30 years and is 
you know, going to pass that on to the next generation when he's you know, getting ready to retire. So there's a lot of different facets to that that exist in Grand Seiko. And I think that's what draws a lot of people in. Yeah, because I, I don't think that's something that could exist in the U.S. What do you think, Rob? Like, do you feel like someone, like, we're talking about the hands just now, the fact that, like, these hands, you have the hand guy. Is that, I mean, do we have that for anything? Um, so I love Grand Seiko. And if you look at the dream store that we built, because Topper Jewelers, when I think when I did my first podcast with you, uh, like a year and a half ago, we were still in our 1500 square mm -hmm. foot store and we built, we built a new 7,000 square foot store that has three main visual, um, areas. There's a Omega boutique, there's a Breitling lounge, and there's a Grand Seiko salon. So to me, Grand Seiko is super elite and they are at the table as some of the best fully manufactured watches, you know, that exist. Um, I don't want to- Can you but, explain fully manufactured I mean, but, real but, quick? Because I think some right, folks may but, not know. Well, fully manufactured co companies that are vertically integrated, companies that um, develop everything from the hairspring to the mainspring to the hands. Uh, if it's a bad quartz watch, they grow their own crystals for the quartz. Um, they have their own dial manufacturing process. They they are they they don't buy the movements from one company and they don't uh, buy the cases from another. Vertically man integrated company makes everything. But right. I have incredible respect for Grand Seiko, and I don't want my my answer to your question to diminish them. But but yes, other other companies have the hand guide too. Glasutza Original, uh, a very fine German watchmaking company, they would have someone dedicated to bluing the hands and bluing the indices oh. on the Pano Lunar. So um, Grand Seiko is at the level of, to me, of other elite manufacturing companies that probably more more elements of vertical manufacturing than almost anybody. Um, but they, but what I love about them is they have an entirely different design aesthetic, an entirely different uh, grammar of design case, um, their, their approach to polish, their approach to finish, and just their overall eth you know, ethos seems different to me. But you can look at mm. other individual elements and see that there are other elite companies that do something similar uh, on some level. But the way they put it together is incredibly unique. Do, do you think that's fair, Joe? Yeah, yeah. I would say that, you know, there, there's always going to be some differences, right? Um, you know, one one example, like bluing, very rare in the industry to get, you know, tempered blue. But you have, you know, companies that will do them in batches, let's say, versus one by one. And that's, you know, that's something that Grand Seiko takes a lot of pride in. Uh, case polishing, I think that's that's one of the best points you could have brought right. up. Right, the 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 Zeratsu polishing that you know. Yeah, can you is... can you demystify Zeratsu? Because that that word gets tossed around all the time, and I don't think people understand what it truly means. Yeah, so in you know, in all reality, it's it's a very complex process that has evolved many, many, many times over many years in doing it. So the the name Zeratsu actually mm -hmm. it's not, it sounds Japanese, but it's it's actually not deriving from Japan at all, and uh, is is actually spelled in katakana, which means it's an imported word, right, or a foreign word that's you know, phonetically pronounced. So the the name actually derives from an old uh, European uh, lapping machine, right? It used to be called Salaz, but when pronounced in Japanese and then brought back to English again, it becomes Zeratsu. But uh, so originally it was the machines that adapted this name. But, you know, this is in the 50s, 60s when, when they first started to come about in Japan. And so from there, learn learning new techniques, new adaptations to utilize instead of, you know, like most polishing nowadays on cases is done by a soft cotton type material on a wheel and you're using the outer edge of the wheel to buff right just like mm -hmm. a buck so you know we'll do that process too but uh you know much smaller amount let's say but with zeratsu we're using a hard metal disc with an abrasive on front right and they sometimes uh refer to it as blade polishing right you're essentially mm -hmm. burnishing or grinding until you achieve a completely flat surface and then the finer the viscosity of the grit the the higher the quality of the smoothness of the surface mm -hmm. and over the years you know for different it could be for different case shapes, could be for different case materials. We've had to learn new techniques. We've even made new tools to help us in the Zeratsu polishing process. So we have many different facets that we've learned new adaptations for. And today, Zeratsu is distinctly our own adaptation, our own thing. But, uh, you know, it all derives from the name of a polishing wheel that, you know, didn't start importing to Japan until the 50s, 60s. So, right. I think the best way to understand it is distortion-free finish. 
So the the famous thing that Joe did um, in the forum days to illustrate Zeratsu finish was he would take a watch, put it on its side, look at the mirror finish, and then he would put like a like a, a book with kanji characters underneath um, underneath the watch, and he'd photograph the watch reflecting the kanji characters, and in the watch you would see. Um, no funhouse effect, no distorted effect. So um, I think that the, the, like for somebody thinking, well, okay, so great, they're using um, a special process. Like, what does it mean to me? It means an evenness on the brushed finishes and on the high polish, a perfect mirror finish. Uh, that's just next level. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, and first off, Joe, confirm or deny, were, were you already a head before you became the head, the curator? Let me be clear. <laughs> yeah, the curator. It's, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, uh, been, I've been selling Grand Seiko for quite some time, you know, originally, uh, you know, behind the counter retail and uh, then, you know, just collecting. Um, you know, it's, it, it became an obsession. You know, this, this brand is, it can be very consumed. So, no, watch is consuming. Get out of here. <laughs> just this brand, right? And right. this is kind of the beauty sure. of it is, you know, it's, uh, and you had mentioned, you know, like the, the different uh, facets, you know, we have, Essentially, what are two different studios, right? Our Shinshu Watch Studio in Central Japan, and then Shizukuishi Watch Studio, uh, or Grand Seiko Studio Shizukuishi in, in Northern Japan. And it's almost like two separate brands, it feels like sometimes, where they make spring drive and quartz in Central Japan, and then they mm -hmm. make all our mechanical pieces in Northern Japan. And they've been rivals almost, uh, you know, I use that term very loosely, but, uh, you know, it's like competitive, you know, brother, brother, uh, you know, sport, right? They're right. always trying to outdo each other, let's say, and we reap a benefit from that. So, but, uh, you know, like, like Rob was saying, things like Zeratsu polishing or movement manufacturing, all done, you know, essentially separately. So it makes you want to collect the brand more and learn more about the brand. But uh, so, to go back to Rob's statement about the, yeah. about the Zeratsu and the mirror polishing. Yeah. I, I mean, I still love to take those pictures because it's fun. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes it can be hard to capture because of the angles and, you know, but that's, that's one of the, like the, the beautiful traits of Grand Seiko is these really flat angular cases. And, you know, like, yeah. Rob, you couldn't get a perfect mirror on most watches because the surface is curved. But because of Zeratsu, we're able to achieve these ultra flat surfaces that are perfect distortion free mirrors. It also helps us retain like really sharp edges too. So you can take all these different, you know, faceted planes and kind of bring them together harmoniously and, and have these really crisp edges on the case. So that's that's kind of, you know, those are the uniquenesses uh, that, that Grand Seiko, you know, adapts because of Zeratsu polishing. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that I, I want to unpack a little bit is, so quartz for for a while, for some folks, was almost like a pejorative term or some That's sort of like word. dividing term. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was like, oh, court, like you're you you can't flex if you have a quartz watch or a quartz is you know some sort of basically it would just be used to belittle or devalue. And I, I for me, my entry point to Grand Seiko, which I still recommend. You correct me if I'm wrong. It is is the quartz stuff. One because of the value, but two just because of. I mean, I don't think people understand how incredibly accurate quartz watches are. And, but like that word for some people throws them off. So could you, you know, and Rob jump in here too, if you want, but like, can you guys explain like why first off quartz isn't bad? Well, I'd like to, I think Rob yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, cause he does you're, so great with quartz. Well, you're, pre you're <laughs> preaching to the choir because, um, I am, I'm pro quartz. Yeah. Because I'll they're be clear. actually, uh, pre pandemic, we actually had a grand Seiko event called quartz day. Like we're we're taking courts back. We're reclaiming courts. Um and the re Yes. <laughs> and um okay, so what what brings value to something? I mean, to me, something is a value if you can form a bond with it, a strong narrative connection to it, and the thing has utility. So people say mm -hmm. that that watches are the cross section of art, history, and technology. And I mean, I I, th I think done the way Grand Seiko does it, courts can check all of the boxes and pr provide a utility that uh, that others can't. Now, we'll get into spring drive a little bit later, which has a quartz element. Oh, yeah. And I know you're eager to talk yeah. about spring drive. Um, but I, I haven't been able to correctly explain it once to anyone. No, so um, we'll, we'll right. jump on that later. <laughs> right. And uh, the odds of people coming away with a clear understanding of, of spring drive after this podcast, and, you know, still probably not a 10 to 1 favorite, but we'll do our best. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Grand Seiko's quartz watches, 
accurate to plus minus 10 seconds a year. Uh, they, they are compatible with true uh, GMT movements that have uh, quick hour settings, uh, just like, you know, Rolex Omega. Uh, they, they are incredibly accurate. Um, you know, the, the precision of a, of a good mechanical automatic, Grand Seiko's automatics are beyond certified chronometers, but that's still negative three to plus five seconds a day. Uh, spring drive plus minus 10 to 15 seconds a month, but quartz is 10 seconds a year. Um, you never have to worry. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that is just, I mean, just to pause for a moment, 10, the, the, to be as accurate within 10 seconds of a year, I mean, is, is insane. Um, they they beat sorry, two times per second to make sure that each beat is as accurate as possible. There's the narrative connection of how they grow their own quartz crystals, which um, every time I hear Joe talk about how they grow their quartz crystals, it's always good. To, can you talk about that, Joe? <laughs> yeah, wait, yeah. Explain growing. Or, or, this, or this what is a crystal? Illegal. Like what is frequency? How does it work? Because when, when you hear all yeah, about yeah. it, it's oh, pretty Jesus. interesting. So complex. So complex. No, the, uh, you know, I mean, basically, you know, like in a mechanical watch, right, you have to establish a pace of time, right? Yeah. So balance wheel rocks back and forth, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, keeping good time, is, you know, with a, with a balance wheel is a very challenging thing. It's been around hundreds of years and it's reliable enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pursuit of higher precision in, in watchmaking, obviously, it, it wasn't just our brand that was pursuing it. There were tons of other brands. But basically, with a quartz, also, with a piece of quartz, right, you can apply a little bit of electricity to it and, you know, in the right shape. Um, all watches pretty much nowadays, there's some exceptions, but most quartz watches are using a tuning fork shape, right? So a little two-prong tuning fork and with a little bit of electricity applied, will oscillate at you know 32,768 hertz which is compared to a standard mechanical watch nowadays is 4 hertz right so that's within 1 hour you know wow uh, uh, you know that's uh that's a lot of oscillation that's some that's but, some activity yeah okay <laughs> So, you know, the, because of the higher frequency, it's more accurate, basically, right? The faster you can make the pace, the more accurate it can become. And, uh, you know, for us, we always wanted to have ultra high quality quartz crystals. So in the 70s, uh, you know, after Seiko came out with their first quartz wristwatch, actually the world's first quartz wristwatch uh, commercially sold, uh, the Astron back in 1969, they oh, yeah. invested heavily into quartz manufacturing. And so quartz uh, crystals themselves, it started in a little small chamber and now we're growing towers. Right, we call the quartz forest. So they have these they have these massive towers that they you know put underground at high heat, high pressure, and these these towers have what they call seeds. Right, it's basically a thin sheet of quartz, and it's all synthetic, right? Because naturally grown quartz has impurities in it. So the more pure it is, the better. So they spend you know up to about six months in this high heat, high pressure chamber. They turn into these big blocks that are bigger than your forearm, and then they cut them down in the thin sheets again. And only the best of the best get used for Grand Seiko, right? So they cut them down into the little tuning forks, and then there you go. You know, this is how this is how we get it. So that's so how when. <laughs> when did you all agree to sign off on the use of this for James Cameron's Avatar franchise? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this sounds great. I'm totally kidding for listeners, obviously. But like, yeah, that's that that's incredible. I, and I think that's the stuff for me that I get the most excited. And in a weird way, when people talk about like learning about how the sausage is made, obviously it can throw them off. But like for, I think when people understand what goes into this, this is why like I've always been such a Seiko boy and a Seiko fanboy, and and just like th the level of care and that I also think is a very strong part of Japanese culture. And this is no shade at Swiss or German. I'm not trying to, you know, it's just I think it's really beautiful. But like we were talking a little bit about quartz. So if you're getting into Grand Seiko and you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, I don't know, I'm I, okay, I'm ready. I'm like, where do you recommend people start? Rob, what about you? Because I'm sure you have people coming into the store and they're like, tell me about Grand Seiko. I heard, I heard Grand Seiko is awesome. I need, I care now. I mean, do you, do you recommend people start at a certain area or place or um, what, what do you, what do you recommend? I'm a big believer in the idea that different people have different paradigms of value and people should go towards what they're drawn, drawn towards. And that could be for different reasons. It could be because someone falls in love with a dial. It could be because someone's in love with the technology. It could be because someone wants the most modern reinterpretation of a historical case um, that hasn't been used mm. with a certain caliber. 
So the most important thing that we can do is acutely listen. What is going to bring someone joy? Because it's ultimately about their story and their connection with the piece. So for the, for example, for the piece we were just talking about, I'll tell you who loves, uh, like, like my favorite chords, Grand Seiko, it's actually, they just retired it. It's, uh, going call back to our numbers sbgn003 that's the um that's a a true gmt big arabic numbers on the bezel black dial um red gmt hand just 40 millimeter basic watch like you'll see people come in that are like i want an incredibly accurate watch that's a true gmt that i can travel with so i mean if somebody walks in you know, feeling that way, uh, I could love the 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 majesty of the snowflake dial as 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 much as I want, and I could personally think that that's where maybe I'd want to start my Grand Seiko collection. But I'd be doing that person a disservice if I'm not listening. So Grand Seiko is a brand with many many worthwhile you know limbs of the tree, and you you it's a good store's job to listen more than talk. Mm, ever the uh, diplomat. My my hot take is snowflake, which I. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, first of all, I, I think that was very eloquent and I, I do agree with you. It's important because the one thing that you, the underlying point that you made too, Rob, was you're not, you're not, because av- you're not advocating people buy on like what they can resell later or what's going to grow the portfolio or the alternative asset index, which I mean, I get some people live in that world, but I frankly somewhat detest it. Like these, these are baseball cards for, you know, th- these well, if are, someone these feels are that way, parts then of our it's lives. our job to listen to that and steer them in that way. I, and, 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 I, I and if everybody it, I who guess. walked in the store felt that way, it would be a less soulful business than it is, but you just yeah. got to listen. Listen to what people yeah. want. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Rob, you're 100% right with that. It's, you know, you have to kind of like, uh, you know, walk with them on that journey to discover what it is that's going to best fit in their lifestyle. You know, it's, it's, it can be challenging sometimes because you get the, you get the people that'll come in and they just want to look at Grand Seiko. They have no need. They have no care. They just want to learn more about the brand and kind of mm-hmm. discover what, what they want to buy. So when you're, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say aimless, but you know, there's a lot of that, you know, there are a lot of people are just, you know, maybe they're, you know, just new to watches, right. And yeah. they don't, they don't know where they belong. And so, you know, I think from my experience, not just myself personally, but seeing other people, uh, you know, I think that I, I think that, you know, guiding them towards something like the snowflake or the Shunbun uh, is is the place to start and then evolve. Right. You 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 have. Well, why, why the snowflake real quick? Because I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp. You, it sounds yeah, like you're in that too. camp. Like what? <laughs> What makes the Snowflake a special watch? And so for people who, you know, we'll, we'll explain this in a second, but like, obviously, like what goes into that dial that I don't yeah. think it's because it, it's not it's not just a computer 3D print, right? No, no. Yeah. the You know, I mean, that's that's the thing. And really, I, you uh, you defined me pretty accurately. Like that's where it started for me was the Snowflake. Yeah. Right. That was that was the Grand Seiko that set it all in motion. Right. I bought that. I was all. Yeah, all Grand Seiko all all the time afterwards. So it was it's I mean it's an amazing watch in that in that regard. But the dial I think is is part of the the biggest beauty of it. I mean spring drive mm-hmm. is great, you know, just uh from a movement perspective, from a technical perspective, very fascinating, very cool. But the dial and I think the story and the connection to Japan is really what kind of embodies, you know, Grand Seiko's you know, uniqueness. Um, mm-hmm. The way I was introduced to the watch, it was, you know, it was the watch that was made to be a tribute to their hometown's winter. And I was like, that's cool. Like, I, I love winter. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. born in the winter. I like the cold, you know, there you go. Fun, but, uh, you know, it's it, it fits, right? It's it's a beautiful thing. So the dial itself, you know, they they had to look back in time and, and see, you know, is there is there a way that we can emulate the snowfall in central Japan where we make spring drive? So to even take a step back further, the whole concept for the snowflake derived from the design of the 9R65 spring drive movement itself. So not a lot of people know this part of the story, but the movement was actually designed to look like the the Hotaka and Jonan mountain range that surround the... Uh, the Shinshu Watch Studio, where they make spring drive, and Jeez. so they had this beautiful movement that like was influenced by the mountains and this beautiful snowy area in Nagano Prefecture in, in central Japan. You know, they call the Japanese Alps. Right, this is '98 Winter Olympics were there. It's where people go. Mm-hmm. You know, probably one of the top 
three, if not in is top two. Nagano or is that? Yeah. 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 So, you know, this is, this is a heavily uh, associated with winter location, right? Mm-hmm. And so after about the first year of making that spring drive movement, they really wanted to push forward and, and kind of embody that entire natural element. So they designed a dial that was based on the mountain range in the snow. And uh, they looked to the past to find textures that may be, you know, capturing this characteristic. I, I was told that like the snowfall there is real light and airy. Right. You get this great powder snow out there because of it's more inland, right? Lack of humidity. And so they wanted to have this pattern look like the snow as if it's been carved out by the wind overnight. So these kind of like mm-hmm. structured layers, let's say. And um, they, they managed to do it amazingly well. Uh, they took influence from a, a watch from the 70s that was in the Grand Seiko catalog. Um you know, for the actual manufacturing uh, process for the achieving the texture, which is done by press. So they're, you know, basically putting a couple hundred tons of pressure with a mold that has this, uh, this pattern carved into it by hand, actually. And that mold presses into each dial base, and that's how they achieve the texture. And so from there, they have the texture, right? But it's a brass dial base, and they need to figure out how to achieve a pure white. But you can't do that with paint, because then it will fill in the, uh, you know, the lacquer paint would kind of fill in the grooves of the texture. It was such a refined texture. So what they ended up doing was uh, going to try and achieve a silver plating process that achieved a pure white color. And even though it was a big technical challenge for them, they were able to achieve it eventually. And uh, they have this pure you know, pure snow white dial, right? If so, uh, you get a chance to go to a GS9 event, and I'm excited because Topper's about to host our first uh, GS9 event in a few weeks. I'm not sure when this will air, but we're having one on June 9th. Um, they have these demos of like like a tray that shows that like the eight or nine step process of how snowflake dials are made, and it's always interesting. So uh, usually, if you can, if you if one of your listeners can make it to one of these events you can see like a label of each of the steps that they do to make a snowflake dial. And it's really worth looking at. What, what is GS9 for folks that don't know? Because if you Google it, you don't always get the answers you may be looking for. So what? <laughs> I, I know you both are familiar with Grand Seiko's GS9 club. <laughs> so yeah, but uh, yeah, to, to those who are not familiar, uh, Grand Seiko's GS9 club is basically our own collector's club. And so if you bought a Grand Seiko, you know, we, we have to do it regionally. So, mm-hmm. different, you know, Japan has its own GS9 club, the US has its own, UK and EU as well. Um, most primary markets have it now. So, um, right. but GS9 club, uh, let's say for, for us, for instance, if you bought a, a Grand Seiko watch since 2017, when Grand Seiko became an independent brand from a US authorized dealer, then you qualify, right? So you just have to sign up, you, you know, input your serial number and and the model and uh you know then you get access basically we have our gs9 club web uh, website which has kind of like a blog uh you know updating with new information uh interviews with designers and all this kind of stuff that's exclusive to members uh so great video interviews and stuff like that a a lot of insider access let's say um We send out gifts. We just sent out our first two publication uh, magazines. So volume one and volume two GS9 club and a nice little pelpin going out to all the members who have their you know address on file registered. Uh, so that's Shit, not- I got to update my address. I didn't get the pin. What? Oh, you <laughs> you better Hold, update it. stop the recording. This is over. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get the pin. I got I got to find the pin. Yeah, the, I mean, the I would always got your old PG&E bill is walking around wearing your pin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> no, but in last, like uh, Rob was mentioning, we do these events. So it all yeah. kind of started with this. The, you you were very familiar because you were there, Jeremy. Yeah. The, uh, oh, yeah. the GS9 event uh, that we had in New York. The first one was in Midtown uh, at Jazz at Lincoln Center, which was amazing. And uh, thank you for participating. I, I hope you had as fun a time as I did. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then we did the big one, uh, you know, last year uh, for uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, so yeah. that was, that was a nice one. Uh, but the big events, right. We do annually. That's, you know, that's once we're trying to always make it, you know, first or second week in November. Um, mm-hmm. and our intention is to do that this year as well. But what we've also started doing is, uh, you know, smaller scale regional events. And, uh, you know, we're going to be with Rob here, uh, June 9th, which I'm very excited about. He always has an amazing turnout there. Um, you know, so these events bring together the community, right. You know, cause 
I mean, let's be honest. Grand Seiko is not the most mainstream thing. Not just, you know, like in the watch community, it, it may be uh, popular, big, you know, gaining a lot of traction, let's say, uh, over the years. But, um, you know, in, in general life, us watch mm-hmm. people, we may not get the opportunities to talk about our watches as much as we'd like, right? <laughs> I know I love to talk yeah. about it. I do it all day. No, no. I appreciate the, the candor. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a good way to bring people together. And you, you have these amazing communities that, uh, you know, that we've been interacting with for, for so many years, um, you know, all over the country, you know, all these different collectors groups. So GS9 Club, you know, which actually started in Japan in 2015. So it's been around there for a long time. Uh, mm. But we introduced in the U.S. in 2020. And so it's growing uh, quite rapidly. But, um, you know, it's it's a new way for like minded people to come together. That's yeah, that's the the essence of it and you get free stuff and you know yeah i was gonna say if it's it's the way that you get grand seiko swag which i I sometimes like laugh that like as much as i love you know i'm i I, i'm a clothes guy first i i I do love watches i will always buy and collect watches but it's a little bit easier entry point with clothes and i always find myself you know for a long time i had saved searches on all sorts of sites for like grand seiko clothes or you know like grand seiko hats or you know omega whatever it is like fill in the blank of like the watch merch and gs9 has some pretty damn good merch just just saying just throwing that out there we're we're, we're, we're very happy to hear that you know yeah by our best but um but it's it is you know it is interesting because you mentioned earlier I, i i find that grand seiko and this is just from my perspective this is not anyone else's um it it is not you know a lot of people will get into watches from a rolex point a tudor point omega point whatever that is and i think eventually if when you get deeper and deeper you want more depth and i'm this again i want to be very clear this is no shade to these other brands but you know grand seiko for me has always been like an if you know you know and the interesting thing and this is what i want to talk to you both about is it's now becoming a little bit less if you know you know there's people that are messaging me that i think are you know still in the newer area of watches and they want to start with grand seiko like and so i ask both of you like where do you think that is that came from where the brand is just really you know there i feel like there's less mystery the mystery is still there if you want it but it's like there's more people that are very much aware of this. This is not just like a head brand, if you know. Like, wh- where do you guys think that came from? I think to your point, when we started selling Grand Seiko, like 2012, 2013, we used to always refer to it as the ultimate stealth luxury brand, like something that was just yeah. as well made as these other brands. Um, yet it was, you know, double logo. Seiko was on um, the the top of the dial. Grand Seiko was almost hidden That's on the right. Dials. And so when Which are now collector species, right? So just for folks, who are yeah, double logo, the kids call them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, I remember in 2017 when Mr. Hattori announced that Grand Seiko was going independent and Grand Seiko was changed to be on the top of the dial. I think he explained the mission statement in like one. I, I, if I'm misquoting him, I apologize. But the ba- basic gist was that he wanted Grand Seiko to be known by all those who sought out luxury and. I think that that was a big difference. Like, rather than having it be a secret handshake inside baseball thing, he wanted people to really uh, understand that if you were going to seek it out, you know, Grand Seiko was there, le- deserving a legitimate seat at the table of, of a premier luxury line. And um, I like to think that just the visual placement of where we put Grand Seiko in our store. Um, really reflects that yeah what what about you i mean joe you've seen that you've been with the brand for a while where i'm sure you've seen the the evolution yeah yeah i mean again you know i i started uh you know outside of working for the brand i got to see the collectors you know kind of uh flock to to grand seiko way before it even came out here um you know it, it was really interesting because seiko back in 2005 or 6 they started to introduce the spring drive movements under the seiko name brand and then another brand called ananta before grand seiko came out and the the interesting thing was people already knew about grand seiko back then like 2005 2006 the world had already found out about grand seiko a little bit and mm-hmm. it was 
was very interesting because, you know, I'd be at the store, you know, they, oh, you, I see you have these, you know, these high-end pieces uh, from Seiko, but can you get Grand Seiko? And I was mm. like, mm, I wish. We've been asking. We've had this request before. And, <laughs> you know, it was it was still a mystery because, I mean, you know, they're, they're very, you know, simple, practical watches, but they're mm-hmm. so exquisitely made. And, you know, for us, never having handled them uh, back then, you know, it was a unique experience when, when they finally came to the States in 2010. And so back then it was a lot of education. You know, you get people calling yeah. and coming in and, and you know, what, what is Grand Seiko? How do you define, you know, what, where would you put it up against comparing to every brand you can imagine, like, oh boy. you know, from the 5,000 up range. And a lot of the times trying to compare them to, to watches 20, 30,000 starting. And, you know, there, there are traits that you can pull that you can compare and, and really, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, show them. Um, so that's, I think, where like the interest kind of started was very small scale, but always seemed to be a very high end, high profile collector who really knew their stuff and needed to learn more. That was, yeah. that was the harder part was needing to learn more. And so today, very different because people come in. I want to see the snowflake. I want to see the white birch. I want to see Omiwatari. I want to see, you know, Shunbun. Uh, obviously, that's like our, you know, our, our best-selling model uh, alongside the snowflake, right? That's, uh, yeah. those are our top two. And Shunbun is winning. You know? <laughs> and the Shunbun is for folks that don't know, it's basically like it's a snowflake spring drive, but there's like a, a, a lovely pinkish hue yes. um, to it. Yeah, a lot sorry, of people sorry, call it ahead. spring because it's inspired by the uh, cherry blossoms. Ah, yeah, that's correct. So that's uh, you know, I mean, that's such a great watch for people, and they come in, they they know. Oh yeah, I've, I've been reading about spring drive. It sounds awesome. You know, I've been uh, I've been studying. You know, and a lot of the time people do start <laughs> with with spring drive, but. Uh, it seems like more people come in knowing what they want. Now they, they have the education. Grand Seiko has been around a little while now, and it's certainly gained yeah. a lot of momentum and not just in the collector's community, but Jeremy, as you mentioned, um, I'm seeing more and more people. This is my first luxury watch and right? I'm interested in Grand Seiko. And that's, I mean, that's exciting for me to hear because I I would have never pinned that to someone ten years ago. Let's say that that was yeah. a, a different situation. So can I can I yeah, give us a, a, sh- a Shinbun versus Snowflake hot take as to yeah. who should choose one and who should choose the other? Let's Please. go. All right. So to me, if you look at the actual case of the Snowflake, the actual case itself, in terms of the bezel lines, the case lines, is closer to an Omega Aquaterra or a Datejust than uh, than the Shinbun, which has the historical 62 GS case, which is I'm comparing. Yeah. Incre- right now, yeah. I'm literally doing a live comparison. <laughs> which is incredible. Which is bezel-less, has a raised historical crystal, and has lines that don't look like anything else, and comes from the first cases of Grand Seiko from the '60s. Snowflake is also 41 millimeters, where the Shinbun's 40. So if you're uh, like a coder who's got like a six and a half, six and three quarter inch wrist, or you're just old and undeveloped like me and have a six and a half to six and three quarter inch wrist. Um, I'd say the the Shinbun probably just wears a a li- it's, it just looks a little bit better on smaller wrists. And then there's the pink versus white question. Um, the pink is incredibly subtle, uh, looks more dynamic and different in different light. Um, but if you want your Grand Seiko to be more like other watches, and I know that might sound strange given how unique the Snowflake dial is. The Snowflake is probably uh, the better choice. Whereas if you really want something where every single box checks different aspects of their history, I'd go more to the Shinbun. Yeah. Ah. Really good points. I mean, the Shunbun, you know, it, it's such a deceiving dial because you look online and you think it's going to be like super pink. And then yeah, you, it's, you see it, it doesn't per- look pink at all. It's like, yeah. it, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to find just it. in the right yeah. light. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bright, mm-hmm. bright light, I think, pulls out more of the silver. And then as you get a little bit more shade on it, you get a little bit more of the pink, but uh, still, even that is hard to define. It, it's a very uh, difficult dial to describe. But you know, I, for me, I've always kind of leaned into the Snowflake. That's that's always been one of my favorite watches. But I also, you know, I have a long track history with it. Right? I, I've worn that through a, a lot of uh, life experiences, we'll say. And uh, you know, it's it's always going to be one of my favorites. I will say Here, now, it, White Birch is king of the king of the castle for me. Okay, that's interesting. You mentioned that. So this is a thing that I feel like many of us i'm sure are somewhat surprised by as as hype entered the chat grand seikos are being like flipped and on one hand i'm like that's kind of cool i guess 
but it's like it's crazy to see like th- there's hype around Grand Seiko now, and I'm I don't know how to respond to it. Yeah, it's it, it, I mean it's uh it can be a little painful when you see like a limited edition that you wish you bought and it's on you know whatever you know site for way over retail like that's yeah that's painful sometimes to see uh we don't you know we obviously don't like that uh or can, condone like resales uh, obviously and we you know uh yeah you know we have a you know we have our own feelings on that i guess each individually but um you know i think that it's it, it, it's very uh different situation you know the brand's certainly more recognized now i think yeah the- i mean grand seiko as much as almost any other brand is a speed game when it comes to the announcement of limited editions if they resonate with the audience and not everyone does but you can look at mm-hmm. um the turquoise peacock that came out last year spgk015 you could look at um um, the one that was the elegant case with this really beautiful uh, light blue dial, and in that, uh, how would you describe that pattern, Joe? Would you just call it a? <laughs> it's a radiating geometric pattern. Yes, <laughs> a, radi- oh a radiating oh, no. geometric <laughs> pattern that that you know so they, made you feel made you feel whirlpool. close to the heavens. Um, but, it, it, wait, hold on, Joe. What'd you say? They called they it the what? The whirlpool. Yeah. Right. So uh, the whirlpool. 2018, okay. we had a limited edition that was, um, you know, an, an anniversary of 20 years of our 9S series of calibers. Right. Yeah. And so it yeah. had this great dial pattern that had little GSs and and the little uh, lightning. That's right. Uh, Dainese Seiko Show logo on the dial, and that became nicknamed the whirlpool. And so the the watch that we introduced last year, uh, which was uh, influenced by Ryu Sendo in Iwate Prefecture, uh, had essentially what is the same pattern, but instead of having the little GS logos, it was uh, you know lines within each tile, let's say. And uh, the the result was amazing. It, it really a beautiful watch i was gonna say there was also a, br- a brown variant that was a little bit larger that was nicknamed the cookie and i was cookie, th- yeah. i always thought of seinfeld oh, the, like look to the cookie when when i thought of <laughs> that watch <laughs> yeah i mean there's it's I, I think that when i saw the white birch start to go nuts and and like i have a few friends who are you know they're they're watch adjacent to me in the, in that way like i i feel like i i kind of i'm not in the watch industry a whole 100% but i'm obviously constantly obsessed with it and and you got your you know you got your to... your toe your foot and your knee in it at least oh yeah <laughs> and i i love it trust me i i'm i'm having the time of my life but when those people were hitting me up about the white birch i was like oh damn yeah. and this is a watch that i think for many people like it's it's it checks every box but now i and, and i'm going to say this and this is no shade in anyone i know i I have a lot of explaining before any comments, but like I was kind of pissed off. I was like, "No, this is my Radiohead. Don't don't get it." What do you mean, Ari? Right That's like, the no, no, best-selling no. album. They're my freaking indie band. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, <laughs> well, right. That's the thing. Is I was like, "No, no, 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 no." I was like, "Wait, don't you have like a a Patek Philippe to go obsess over or something right now?" And they're like, "No, man, I'm really feeling this." And I was like, "Can't you just like it. try to get another Pepsi <laughs> on Jubilee?" I mean, come on. That's what you've been talking I mean, about for four years. One, you know, we did win yeah. our Grammy with that. That's you know, it, it took us to the next level. It's uh, you know. And like literally, we got the you know kind of like the Oscars in watchmaking, right? We won the Grand Prix Horology Geneva Best in Men's category with the White Bird. Like that's I mean, a, it's huge. a huge honor. Yeah, it's a you know, I mean, still to this day, we're the only Japanese brand to have won an award by the Grand Prix Horology of Geneva. You know, it's it's a, it's a huge and distinct honor. Really. But I think this is this is the thing that it goes to show you how how far the brand has come, and you know, and also I think people because the the other thing that happened is obviously the the market is far more educated. You know, I know, I mean, everyone loves to get their hot takes, whether it's through anonymous Instagram comments or whatever that is, but like there's, you know, there's much more education uh, and and people feel way more empowered. And I think a lot of that is thanks to people like you, Rob, for what you guys do at Topper. And then obviously, Joe, like how how transparent and communication you guys are about Grand Seiko and like what, what they're made. And I think that's really refreshing too, because you have other companies that in a weird way, they just don't, they're, they're, they're common is always no comment. And I think sometimes it, you know, because watches are so emotional, like both of you were saying, that like I I feel like I have a deeper connection when I'm <laughs> now I sound dumb. Like when I'm acknowledged, right? When like those people are like, yeah, we will discuss that or we will come or we will explain how that is. And I think that that's really powerful. And in a market and world now where we're looking for people to connect with over 
objects or even brands, knowing that there is a person at these brands, like it is very refreshing. So I, I, it, it gives me a, a lot of excitement. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, you know, you're 100% right on the like personal connection thing. And that mm-hmm. it, it kind of sparked something in my mind. You know, I, uh, I, I've uh, just started traveling back and forth from Japan again. And so nice. Yeah, it's uh, I love it there. Uh, you know, you can't uh, pry me away. But uh, the you know, the time in Japan is, is always is always very valuable. You know, there's like and there's right now, uh, you know, I just got I was I was there for a couple of weeks and got back uh, at the beginning of the month and I was amazed at the tourism, you know, compared to when I was there in December to today. And I've also noticed a huge influx of requests from, you know, my customers and, and, uh, uh, VIPs and you know anyone really like friends of mine uh, wanting to go to our manufacturer and they're going to oh the museum first off is is hands down one of the greatest places to go in Japan and, and it's it's better yeah. than it was they just reopened it in Ginza and uh, let's go almost double the inventory the display they display much more um, so you know if you haven't been to Japan uh, since the pandemic started um, mm-hmm. you know I highly recommend going back and and seeing our museum and more importantly though is uh, trying to, to book the tour at uh, our Grand Seiko studio, Shizukuishi. So that place is uh, incredible, right? It was designed by renowned architect Kengo Kuma. And uh, the guy, you know, he has this amazing vision and always wanting to use natural elements surrounding the studio. So like vast majority of the wood for this uh, studio, which is almost entirely made of wood, uh, is locally sourced, you know, and it's, oh, wow. yeah, it's, uh, it's got this pattern, uh, Yamato Bari, that uh, is like uh, layered, let's say, or, or staggered, and uh, is supposed to create the rhythmic expression of our mechanical timepieces, since that's where we make our, you know, the heartbeat of our mechanical timepieces. So it's, you know, wow. brilliantly designed. It's a beautiful building. And then they've, uh, they've got this kind of nature walk all around the studio, and you get to see the watches being made. Uh, it, it's really an incredible uh experience so now you know japan was closed off you know with very strict uh rules to get in during the pandemic and Mm -hmm. people have been dying to go back and it seems like they are they are going back now they're they're going back in full force and they want to go see the studio and so we can uh you know accommodate tours with you know of course a limited schedule um right right studio so i think that's that's going to be one of the most beautiful things for grand seiko moving forward is not only you know do you have the experience of owning a grand seiko but you can go to its home and and see where your timepiece is made and just kind of experience the nature and and kind of embody like everything that they see in iwate prefecture up north so joe if you're um if you're if you're on one of those tours um when it's the public, do you get to wear like the suits for the clean room? That's, that's a- <laughs> no, not uh, so as it stands now. And since COVID, they haven't had uh, anyone anyone really going in and out of the clean room. Yeah, so ah, you, you've nice. got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, but. <laughs> You should talk about the clean room because the clean room is the fr- like it's like this oh, yeah. is the dust free yeah the dust free yeah. clean rooms where the movements are assembled and made like like the 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 like the airflow the security the suits you wear it's like um, like I remember when I got to go there with, uh, with my wife on a tour it was like so amazing look, looking at uh, the people assembling the calibers oh yeah yeah it's uh, so you do, you know you kind of see everything through the glass now but there's a few different ways you can see it but uh, if you do get the opportunity you have you know if you're a watchmaker let's say in the studio you walk into you know this kind of double doorway and take the the air shower so it blasts you with air to remove any possible <gasps> dust you have you know the hat the the suit the booties for your shoes everything you know is such a tight tolerance right and uh the way that it was designed actually is uh you know with air air filters in the floor and ceiling and uh you know it's it, it's incredibly sterile, but um, you know the the experience is still quite similar when you go there now. So when you go, you have to watch the watchmakers through the window, but you can see very like you're right at the edge of their desk, so you can see very clearly what they're working on, and and uh, you know it's just as cool of an experience. And then you have an overhead view that you can walk mm-hmm. through of everything. While I was there, I saw the uh, the new tentograph being made. I was very excited. Um, those are going to be you know those those are going to be another great winner for yeah, do, do you want to explain the tentograph real oh, yeah. quick tentograph is basically it's it's similar to the white birch in the sense that it's the same base movement right the, mm-hmm. the base movement that's in the white birch is in this new tentograph but we've added a chronograph module that uh not only is ultra energy efficient but is also uh 
developed a new testing standard. So it's a new sports watch in our Evolution 9 collection with a ceramic bezel, a, a, a kind of a grayish blue dial that has our Mount Iwate texture. Because if you're at our mm-hmm. Shizukuishi studio and you look out the window, you see Mount Iwate. Uh, hopefully, you know, on a, on a nice clear day, but there's, you know, good chance it could be cloudy. When I was there last, it was the first time I, I had ever seen uh, Mount Iwate with no clouds in front of it. You know, it was absolutely beautiful. Oh, sick. Yeah. And so you go upstairs and like when you're on the observation deck in the lounge, uh, you can see, you know, off into the distance pretty far. It's it's a beautiful view from the studio. But so Mount Iwate serves as the influence for the texture of the dial. And then this new movement that we developed is uh, basically breaking all the rules for making a high performance chronograph and making it incredibly accurate and stable. So that's uh, it's a big technical breakthrough for it. Hey, Joe, yeah. had you ever made a mechanical chronograph before the Tentograph at Grand Seiko? No, no. And I I thought we never would. No, we always spring drive. So Tentograph comes from 10, from 10 beats, T from three day, A from automatic and graph from chronograph. So it's our 10 beat three day automatic chronograph, which has the longest power reserve of any high beat 36,000 mechanical chronograph on the market today. So I think we're an hour in and I think we talked about courts, but we haven't really talked about exactly what spring drive is yet. Right. Have we done that? Did I miss it? I don't think so. (laughs) No, we we haven't. Yeah, I think. Spring spring draft is the it's the elephant in the room. Yeah, so I, I think if you're you can't really explain the tentograph without explaining spring drive. And thank God we have the man to do it right here. <laughs> Basically, spring drive is a mechanical movement, right? It's either automatic or self uh, automatic self winding or manual winding. And where you would find the conventional escapement in in your typical automatic watch or manual winding watch, you would find a unique operating mechanism. Uh, we call it a trisynchro regulator, which is basically an electro an electromagnetic escapement, right? So flex. It's it's a flex. Yes. It about <laughs> thirty almost thirty years of R and D before putting it into continuous production. And uh, you know, a, a lot a huge investment. There was like six hundred patents uh worldwide, uh you know, I'm sorry, it was six hundred prototypes to over 230 patents worldwide right this is that's uh, still crazy but yeah <laughs> it, it is crazy it, it was a big challenge to make and uh basically you know as rob mentioned earlier it uses the accuracy from a quartz crystal to determine ultra precise time but there's no battery there's no capacitor the brilliant thing about it is it's all mechanical energy that generates a small amount of electricity and then uses that same electricity to become an electromagnetic uh, uh, electromagnetic break and control its time so it's uh you know three different points right mechanical energy that's actually way better than teddy baldessari did it i, I mean I'll, I'll, props <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, that that's very, that makes a lot of sense. And if I'm, you want to just not really understand it and just fake your way through it, just go uh, magnets, quartz, mid second hand, spring drive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the beauty of it, right? Spring drive, very accurate, very durable and reliable. But, and can, you know, I mean, from my own testing, you know, it's uh, it's got to be probably one of the longest durations that I've gone without having to watch service. Like, I'm a guinea pig. Don't, don't use me as an example, but because there's no collision mm-hmm. or friction in the escapement, it's it, it really it, it alleviates a lot of pain. Let's say so. On top of that, because there's no stop and go motion in the escapement, the second hand glides. It doesn't tick. It doesn't sweep. Oh yeah, it's perfect, sick. smooth. Yeah, so yeah, the beautiful thing. Yeah, it's it's really sick. One of my favorite things is uh, reading other people explain what spring drive is, like in Instagram comments, and oh. I'll I'll see if my editor or uh you know one of my guys can can find some of the ones that i've saved because they're they're really bad and great Send them people to me. Like, i would love the, to see <laughs> oh they're so good it's like there should be a contest of like how to totally you know d- explain it the wrong way because someone's <laughs> like it was through an argument between you know this person and the, and how they viewed the mountain and this person said wait till the season changes and when the season changed he won and that's and i was just like what on earth uh but yeah that sounds, that sounds epic though I, I look forward to reading <laughs> yeah it's a george r, r. martin series <laughs> called game of thrones <laughs> so we're, we're um, waiting for pages on the the true yeah. the true oh God, origin right. of spring drive yeah, it's like, get it together, George. Get off your high horse, buddy. Dude, the, I think the last time it, one of his books came out, it was like Desert Storm. Homie, the clown, get it going. Anyway. <laughs> but but, but uh, here's here's 60 pages of, of prequel from something that happened 340 years ago in the story. I know. Yeah. 
No, not not a fan. I, I I bounce myself out of the of the world of Westeros. Um, before we wrap, there's some there's definitely a few things I wanted to ask of you. So a lot of you guys, um, you you see people all the time walk up to you and they're wearing watches. And you know, Rob, you run a store. People come in. Maybe they got an Apple Watch on. Maybe they got a watch. But in a lot of ways, and this is the truth, whether we want to admit it or not, what we wear says a lot about how we view ourselves and how we want others to see us. So a person comes in wearing a Grand Seiko. What do you think? Like, what do you think this guy says? Um. Well, I, I always, I always get too scared, scared about that because you, you mm-hmm. I always think that if nothing else, you should pick up on some level of values of design cues that that this person likes. So mm-hmm. I'll tell you what probably would be true, but for all we know, his wife got it for him and it's an anniversary present and you know who knows but it, what it probably says is he he likes uh he likes substance he's in, he's interested in technology he's interested in design i mean that's probably the most basic level um Fair. Um, I, I think it's probably a leap to talk about that. It means that that person, you know, has pictures of the of the grown quartz crystals up on his wall that Grant Seiko <laughs> uses. But, you know, oh, I thought I had those hidden. I thought I had my screen blurred. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, I think that that's the the most common thing is that the, the person has the person probably has a, a pretty good understanding of 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 what makes a luxury watch have value and probably understand substance. And it's probably, you t- described some friends where Grand Seiko was their first luxury watch, but I'd say that's mm-hmm. probably the minority. It probably means the person's got a deep love of the hobby. The person's probably a, re- a regular media consumer, as in probably reads Houdinki, mm. Blog to Watch, uh, Fratello. It's, it's like the yeah. percentage of people that really follow the news cycle of watches that are Grand Seiko owners, that's got to be way higher than other similarly priced luxury brands. Yeah. Joe, what about you? You're sitting on a plane, the individual next to you, he, she, they, they're wearing a Grand Seiko. What do you think? That Ironically, that's happened to me recently. Like, I... I on it, like, what'd you say? So here's the thing. You know, I'm the curator, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I said. I said hey, <laughs> nice watch. <laughs> no, I, I was so amazed, and uh, you know, it's I, I've I've had amazing conversation with people on plane. I spent a lot of time on the plane, and uh, you know, I, I it started probably just before the pandemic that people really started recognizing Grand Seiko in outside of watch nerdery situations right where you know i'm at a at a red bar event or something like that you know so mm-hmm. on the plane uh first first experience i had was the uh gentleman sitting next to me it was i think he was wearing a brightling or something along those lines and and we start talking and he's like oh it's a nice watch he's like oh it's a grand seiko and i was like yeah like thank you uh, i wasn't sure you would be familiar with the brand and he's like oh yeah he's like i've been looking at him looking at a snowflake you know is that the snowflake i was amazed right then next wow. uh, i think it was Last year for Couture uh, or something along those lines, uh, older gentleman sitting next to me, probably in his 80s, you know, he's uh, he's wearing a Seiko watch, but he's like, oh, he's like, he's like, uh, you know, he's like, nice watch you got there. What is that? He's like, oh, it's a Grand Seiko. He's like, those are expensive. It's <laughs> like, they say Grand. I was like, wow, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so most recently sitting, uh, sitting directly across from me uh, up one one row gentleman wearing a grand seiko and i said i all i said was nice watch and that was it but i was i sat down with the biggest grin you know because i i felt like you know this is the first time outside of japan at least that i've seen someone wearing the watch in the wild like totally unrelated and uh you know it, it was amazing i mean it's uh, yeah so if that situation were to happen and i actually you know didn't just sit there giddy um i would probably think to myself that you know they're contemplating their next one uh <laughs> Because that's usually the case, right? You get oh, one yeah. and then you're like, oh, that's me. I want this one too. So, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of engineers too. Ah. Yeah, that's always, that's always a good one. Yeah. So I think in terms of how frequently we see them, I mean, there there was a slide presentation that I saw f- from um, the, one of the leading uh, luxury information aggregators and it ranked uh, in Grand Seiko's sweet spot, which is men's watches, five to ten thousand dollars, where the various brands ranked, and Grand Seiko Ooh. was surprisingly high. I think it went. Rolex was one, uh, Omega was two, um, I think Breitling was three, and Grand Seiko was four, and Cartier was five. And so above Cartier, and 
just again, not, I mean, I mean, yeah. you can take all the time right. in the like, world and they're going to, they're going to drown out the, the grand Seikos, but uh, it again, just, just men's five to 10,000. So, and you looked at like where they were seven, eight years ago, I think they weren't even registering in the top 20. So I think a lot of people are going to see a lot more grand Seikos on planes and, and it's just, again, quality is being understood by those who seek it out. Yeah. Mr. Hattori's dream well, that, that's is a being good... realized. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gents, I mean, wh- while we're chatting, let's go ahead and discuss what is on our wrist right now. Joe, do you want to go? Who wants to start? Okay, I'll start. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're Mr. Grand Seiko. I don't know. Here. I don't know about that, but uh, I do love me some Grand Seiko, uh, especially some white birch. So that's what I got oh, today. I'm, uh, damn it. I, I'm a proud owner of both versions, the Spring Drive and the High Beat, but I always kind of gravitate towards the High Beat. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm, uh, too, uh, too in love with this watch. Maybe sometimes I can't wear anything else nowadays. So even though the quick question, do you sleep with, do you sleep with your watch? Do you wear your watch on your wrist when you sleep? Sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So not, not okay. always, but, uh, yeah, it it has a tendency to be there when I wake up and it's convenient when I do, I can see how late I am. Yeah. <laughs> Rob? Um, I'm wearing another Evo 9 watch. I'm wearing a Spring Drive GMT watch that has the power reserve on the front. Um, so I'm wearing oh. SBG E285, which is affectionately known as the Mist Flake because of That's its a pattern dial. Um, I had been polishing this during our entire conversation or just wiping it with the... So I'm wearing the... Uh, I think it's the SBGA413. This is the Shunbu we were talking about. Um <laughs> And I will you say, you got a hip strap on that. I, what is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is a. Um, actually, I I think it might be from Delugs or or Hidinki. It doesn't say on the back, but it's a uh, it's a taupe strap. Um, yeah. I was turned on to these. Shout out to Stephen Pulverant, who uh, put a lot of his watches on these like you know brownish textured taupe straps. And I do love the titanium bracelet because it's awesome, but uh, I really, really love like Grand Sega watches on leather straps. And so I, this is kind of my, my bread and butter is, is wearing this, this watch. I mean, and it, it just, it, it calls out the pink a little bit more mm-hmm. on the dial. It's yeah. I, I, I always tell people to throw, you know, whatever GS they have and put it on a, a leather strap. I just think it looks, re- it, it looks great. Yeah. No, Steven's definitely known for, for doing that. <laughs> Yeah, he loves he loves his taupe. Yeah, the man loves it. Yeah, he got the, he loves he his got taupe. the GS nine watch. I wonder if he put that on taupe. I haven't seen, but I'm curious. Oh, oh I'm sure it'll be there. Yeah, GS nine with, with the signature taupe jacket. He's he's got it. He's got his <laughs> he's got his hues. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love a good wrist check. I didn't know if I was when I mentioned it, you guys were gonna log off and and call me a clown. So I, I appreciate oh. you uh, you you humoring. So me we here. just started a, a podcast. Uh, Zach Pena and I co-host called Berlin Game and Park, and uh, it's great. I heard and it. We, yeah. uh, we're we're four episodes in. someday, hopefully, we'll have you guys on on our podcast. Um, but we always do a wrist. We always do a wrist check, and we always and once in a while we'll be like thirty four minutes in. And we're like, Where's the wrist check? And then so it's, it's you know it's good to have staples. People want to know. People want to know what's on your wrist. Um, well, gents, thank you so, so much for your time. I, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that we got to chat and, uh, and, and, and talk GS. Um, but thank you so much. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. All right. See ya.